the beginning of the summer, we started a sermon series titled Seeking a Homeland. We have been looking at all kinds of different people from Scripture, Old Testament as well as New, that were seeking a homeland. Their stories have had a lot to teach us. And as we have made our way through each one of them, hopefully you have grabbed hold of all kinds of lessons, ones that apply to your life and ones that help you as you lead others that are seeking a homeland. This morning I have titled the message, When You Are Seeking a Homeland, You Will Find a Redeemer. Interestingly enough, I'm going to be showing you somebody from the Old Testament that teaches us that. Now, you might think to yourself, when I'm looking for a Redeemer, I'm looking for Jesus. As well, you should be. But in the Old Testament, we find people that give us a pattern that help us understand what God has done for us through His Son. The one that I'm going to show you this morning is quite intriguing. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth. It's only four chapters long, little tiny book, but it has a great deal to teach. The book of Ruth, right in the Old Testament. If you're needing some help finding that, go through the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you're going to go through Joshua, Judges, and there's Ruth. That's the easiest way to find it. Just go in eight books, and you'll find this tiny little four-chapter book. Once you get there, you may find yourself somewhat intrigued that the book does not tell us who wrote it. That's been an interesting point of debate for people for years and years and years as they have wondered who the author was. It doesn't appear that it was Ruth herself, so that has left a lot of room for question and a lot of room for speculation. Here's what we know. Whoever wrote it was a master storyteller, truly a master storyteller. Some people believe that it was Samuel that wrote the book, if that's the case, we don't really know, but we do know whoever did it, did it well. It has been called, this tiny little book, a perfect short story. In fact, some people would say that it is the most intriguing short story ever written. Now, if it's been a while since you were in high school English, you might not remember the definition of a short story, so I have one for you. It's on the church app. If you are looking at that right now, you can actually see it. Here's a definition of a short story. A short story is a piece of prose fiction that typically can be read in one sitting and focuses on a self-contained incident or series of linked incidents with an intent of evoking a single effect or mood. That definition alone, when it is laid over the book of Ruth, fits perfectly except for this. Ruth is not fiction. It is a true story, and it does evoke a single effect within all of its readers. It's absolutely remarkable. I want to show you that single effect as we make our way through the message this morning. But you need to understand some of the timing and things that were going on when the book was written. Somewhere between the years 1100 B.C. and 1160 B.C., that means before the time of Christ, this book and all of the events that are contained within it were written. Everything that happened took place during those years. Because we know that, we know that it was a dark time for the Israelites, for the Hebrew people. It was dark because they had been disobedient. 
They refused to obey God. They refused to do the things that He had told them to do. So the Lord sent judgment. That judgment came in the form of war and famine, and that drove people out. It just drove people out. If you're in the book of Ruth, let's look at chapter 1, and I'll show you what that looks like, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's how bad it was. They were driven out of their homeland. The famine was so severe in the nation of Israel that people had to go somewhere else just to make it. They couldn't survive. Now, I'm not talking about a period of drought like we have experienced where things were a little bit difficult. It was bad enough they couldn't raise crops. They couldn't do anything at all. So they had to go where there was food. They were completely displaced until God heard their cries. In verse 6, we learn this. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. That means Naomi. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had, had visited his people and given them food. There is a pattern contained in the book of Ruth that we see other places in Scripture as well. This is what that pattern looks like. People are disobedient to God. They sin. Then there are consequences for those sins. They suffer. And then after suffering for a while, they cry out to God. In Sunday school, we would, or we would call that supplication. So the pattern goes sin, suffering, supplication. And then when we pray, when we cry out to God, God responds in salvation. Whether that is the salvation of our souls when we first come to know Christ, or whether that is salvation from a particular situation, that pattern is seen over and over and over again. Maybe you've experienced it, where you have sinned, and you have suffered, and you have participated in supplication, crying out to God, and then gracefully you have got to receive His salvation. That's the pattern. Happens all the time. And the book of Ruth shows it to us beautifully. Just in six verses, right out of the chutes, we see that pattern showing up. It's pretty intriguing, remarkable when we see that. But I don't want us to bog down on that. I want us really to look at this book. When we do, what we're going to discover is that it is written from the perspective of Naomi. Even though it carries the name of Ruth as its title, it is written from the perspective of Naomi, her mother-in-law. Most of the book centers around her life. Just look at what we just read. She and her husband Elimelech were Jewish by birth. They had grown up in the Holy Land. And then caught in the famine and the wars, they left and went to this distant land called Moab, where they lived for about 10 years. Well, at least Naomi did. Elimelech died there. Her husband died. 
And then both of her sons that were born in either Israel or Moab, they had, well, they were born in Israel. They had moved to Moab with them. Then they died. Then we learn about her different relationship with both of her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. That's all about Naomi. As we make our way through the book, we will learn about them returning, or at least Naomi and Ruth returning to Israel, back into the Holy Land. We will learn about Naomi's relative, Boaz. We will learn about the land that she owns that will become their provision and the way that God would use that to take care of their needs. We will hear about a Redeemer, and we will see a story that will continue on. It is Naomi's story. Ruth is just a part of it. But in the process of Naomi's story, Ruth rises up too. She becomes a main character in the midst of the story, even though it's not hers. We learn about her loyal love in places like Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. If you still are open to Ruth 1, look at this. This is powerful teaching. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Naomi wanted Ruth to stay in a place where she would have a future. But it looks like out of this loyal love, Ruth says, that doesn't matter. I will sign on for a lifetime of suffering with you, and I will be okay with that. I don't have to worry about it because I want to be with you. Where you go, I will go, and your people will be my people. Interestingly enough, God doesn't let her story end right there. In fact, Ruth's story will make its way all the way to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, we read these words. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of, ready for this, Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Ruth's loyalty to Naomi will lead her into a place where she becomes not just a part of Naomi's story, but a part of God's story. It will be through Ruth and Boaz that God will protect the lineage of David. And by protecting the lineage of David, he will protect the lineage of Jesus. That will become a part of her story because of her faithfulness. Verse 16 in Matthew chapter 1 shows us that. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Ruth's story leads all the way to Jesus, which means Ruth's story leads all the way to us. In the middle of this tiny little book, we find God in the center of it. Boaz is the man that Ruth would marry. He'll become the father of the lineage He'll be the one that David's line comes from and Jesus' line comes from. But without Ruth, that would have never happened. Boaz, in the midst of all of his story, will stand as what Bible scholars refer to as a type of Christ. He is a picture of what Jesus will be for us. All of that is in this tiny little 
four-chapter, perfectly written short story that is designed to invoke a certain response from all of us. I want to encourage you to read this book on your own. It can be read in one sitting. You don't have to have hours of time. You don't have to have great biblical understanding. You just need to know how to read. Read this short story on your own. We don't have enough time to do it today, though I was really tempted because the book is so good. It is so inspiring. I wanted us to, to make our way through it together, but we just don't have the time. So read it on your own. And because I trust that you will, I'm just going to show you some sound bites out of this book, starting with the one that we just read in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. Then we can move on to chapter 2. I'll just show you a sound bite from each chapter. Look at this, Ruth chapter 2, verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. In chapter 4, let's skip on over there, and then we'll bounce back to chapter 3. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Sound bites that evoke a response. Then there's this one. It is possibly my favorite. It is certainly good medicine. Found in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. He said, Who are you? That's Boaz speaking. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You are a redeemer. See what those sound bites do to us when we get into this little book? Each one of them has a way of, of inspiring us. Each one of them has a way of teaching us. Each one of them has something to show us if we will just open our eyes. Like this one. Let's just back up to chapter 2. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, those are the servants, the men that worked for him that were out in the field, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Can you imagine what it was like in that society where people greeted one another that way? The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Let me show you what that would look like. My good friend Ray is going to come up here on the the platform with me. Ray and I see each other a couple times a week. We have known each other for 17 and a half years. We have hunted together. We have traveled not only within the United States together, we have traveled outside the United States together. Ray and I have a, a deep, long history together. So it wouldn't be surprising to hear us greet each other this way. So just picture this. Ray stops by after he's been blading out in the woods and he comes in to see me, but I see him in the parking lot. So I walk out to Ray and walk right up to him and I say, Ray, the Lord be with you. And Ray responds this way. The Lord bless you. Man, wouldn't that be cool? Watch this again. I see Ray at Rose Hours and everybody's watching us and I walk up to him and I say, Ray, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Wouldn't that be cool? Imagine what that type of a greeting, and thanks, Ray, 
What that type of a greeting would do for the hate that has permeated our society lately. If people stopped walking up to people skeptically looking at them and wondering what they're thinking, and instead they just said, the Lord be with you. Can you imagine how that would melt tension? And when that person responds, the Lord bless you, can you imagine how relationships would be built right there just by that type of a greeting? Well, part of what we have to remember is that when Boaz did that and the people in his field responded, they did so after they had just gone through a dark period, a difficult period. It looks like that greeting was used as a means of remembering so that they never went back. It was a means of reminding themselves all the time, the Lord be with you and the Lord bless you. We better do what God says. If that is the case, wow, the power of remembrance would be something. So we make our way through Scripture. We see all kinds of different verses that teach us that same thing, that we need to remember. We need to hold on to the things that God has done for us. There are ways to do that by utilizing Scripture. I've written five different passages down for you. They are on the church app that will help you remember. The first one is all about how God remembers us. Listen to this from Isaiah 49, verses 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, your walls continually before me. That's how God remembers you. He has engraved you on the palm of his hands. The Lord will never forget you. Even when you're in that pattern of sin where you sin and you suffer and you cry out in supplication to him, he has salvation waiting for you because God has never, listen, God has never, listen, God has never forgotten you. You are engraved on the palm of his hands. Doesn't it? Yes, amen. Doesn't it make sense that we should remember him? Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 says, And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. That causes us, knowing that God has engraved us on his palms, to ask ourselves, have we so engraved him on our hearts that when he tests us, we pass the test? We stand up to it. The only way we do is by remembering him. Maybe we just need to remember what he's done for us always. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. You remember everything the Lord has done. Keep that list always before you, so that if you were to walk up to somebody and say to them, the Lord be with you, and they respond, the Lord bless you, you're able to say, oh, he has. He has. Let me tell you about all those blessings. These come from the days of old, my walk with him. Remembering God is such an important thing that the Lord himself gave us a tangible means of doing that. We're going to participate in it in just a few minutes. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. Listen to what Jesus says about that. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
When we take communion, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what the Lord has done for us. Now, the Bible would go on to teach that when you take communion, you're preaching a message to everyone around you that sees you take communion. You are declaring Jesus Christ and Him crucified and your belief in Him. Every time you take communion, you are making a declaration. It's like saying to everybody around you, the Lord be with you. And having them say back, the Lord bless you. And when you hold that bread and you hold that juice, no greater blessing will ever come your way. Jesus Christ gave himself willingly for you. He died on a cross. He was buried and three days later, he rose from the grave so that you would have no fear of death. Remember that forever. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. And if you have been blessed by knowing the truth of his grace and goodness, honk your horn. For those that haven't experienced that, Revelation chapter 2, 5 gives us a warning to remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. If you have known the Lord and you have fallen in your relationship with him, Jesus says, repent. And these are his words, even in Revelation. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You remember what you did when you first fell in love with Jesus and do it again. Because if you don't, the Lord may come and remove your lampstand. You don't want to sit in judgment of God because you forgot. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Remember everything he has done for you. What a cool passage in Ruth's tiny little book to remind us that we need to do that. But that's not the verse that I really want us to spend time with. I want us to take a look at chapter 3, verse 9. Let's go back and do that. Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. Samuel writes, He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. For you are a redeemer. Man, this is where we get into the teaching that is so important out of this tiny little book. Now, Boaz says that to Ruth when Ruth comes and lays at the foot of his bed in the middle of the night after he's been working all day long. She says, spread your covering over me after he says to her, who are you? What's going on here? Who are you? She says, spread your covering over me for you are a redeemer. One of the things that was very apparent to Ruth as well as Naomi by this point in the story is that they did not have the ability to take care of themselves. Ruth was out gleaning in the fields of Boaz every day, picking up the scraps. That's how they were surviving. They were living off of scraps, things that were left in the field by God's order, but still it wasn't much. And they knew that it wasn't going to be enough. Naomi owned a piece of land in Israel. And God had instituted an idea called the kinsman redeemer that would protect property and it would protect inheritance. It would protect the people of his holy land. This is a great plan. The kinsman redeemer very simply came into effect when a person died, particularly a male person died then their nearest kinsman, their nearest relative, would have the opportunity to help his family out, the deceased family out. 
In a lot of situations like that, a man dies, just like Elimelech, and Naomi is left with no choice but to sell the land that they own. So the land gets sold, and now she has no future except for the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer can come in and purchase that land back and give it to the wife of the deceased and make sure that it is okay. And nobody can argue it. No court can say no. This was God's plan. If you really want to understand kinsman redeemer, look on the app. We have some things there for you as well, like a definition of kinsman redeemer. And this is a good one. It's in the sermon notes. A kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to various laws of the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need. The law was given to protect inheritances of specific families. That's the kinsman redeemer. And the Lord gave it for situations just like this. So Naomi says to Ruth, we have a kinsman redeemer. His name is Boaz. You go lay at his feet when he is tired and you tell him who he is. So Ruth did exactly what Naomi had told her to do. And that's where we catch up to this part in the story. He says, who are you? What's going on? And she says, spread your covering over me for you are a redeemer. Peel away all the layers of that onion. She said, I'm in trouble. On my own, I'm not going to survive. I'm not going to survive. Naomi's not going to survive. We have no hope. We need a redeemer. Spread your covering over me. And at that moment, we begin to see God's plan for redemption. We begin to see God's plan for salvation. Because every one of us at some point in our life will have to come before the Lord and say, On my own, I have no hope. Spread your covering over me, for you are a redeemer. That's amen. That's why, that's why Boaz is a type of Christ. Because on our own, we are completely lost and without hope. But when we allow the Lord to spread his covering through his son and his blood over us, we have a redeemer because we're in trouble if we don't. If we don't call out to him and cry out to him and say, Lord, I know I've been disobedient. I know that I've sinned. I know that there are consequences. I need you to help. See the pattern again? I've sinned. I've suffered. And now I'm saying, Lord, help me. Spread your covering over me because you are a redeemer and the only one there is. God is always faithful to do that very thing. And that's what Boaz did. He spread his covering over Ruth and in the process over Naomi. And they were redeemed. They were cared for. They were given a hope and a future. And that came through the idea of redemption. When we present salvation... We present it exactly like that. You've heard me do this a number of times. There are five steps, five things that happen in the process of salvation. The first happens when we recognize who we are. Romans chapter 3 teaches us that. We are a sinner separated from God. The next step is to recognize who God is. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that God has revealed himself to all mankind, oftentimes through nature, little tiny snow spots on Dome Mountain and other things just like that. The Lord has revealed himself to us through creation so that no man is without excuse. You know who God is. We know that everyone will know who God is. 
Once we know who we are and we know who God is, it is imperative for us to understand who Jesus is. And Romans chapter 6 teaches us that He is the one that closes the gap between us and the Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the one who died to redeem us. Once we understand all three of those things, the only question left is what must we do to be saved? A group of people asked that question in Acts chapter 2, and Peter responded by saying, you must repent of your sin. It is not enough to say, Lord, I've sinned and I have suffered. Please save me because I want to continue sinning even now and not suffering. So Lord, save me, but remove the suffering. Doesn't work that way. We have to repent of our sin and say, I don't want to do that anymore. So we turn and go the other way. And then the Bible says, be baptized. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When we are baptized, the coolest thing happens. That's that moment where we say to God, spread your covering over me for you are a redeemer. That happens in baptism. Spread your covering over me for you are a redeemer. And I want to be covered by your goodness, covered by your blood, and covered by your grace. That is an easy way to prevent, present salvation to people. It works in the book of Ruth and it works in the book of Romans. It works all through the Bible. Five steps that lead us back to a place where we say to the Lord, spread your covering over me for you are a redeemer and on my own, I will not make it. On my own, I am lost. On my own, I am poor. On my own, I am destitute. I need a redeemer and the Lord will give it to you. That's why chapter 3, verse 9 may very well be the most important verse in all of this little short story. But there are other parts that are highly important too. And let me take you to just one more. We already read it. Let's just go back to it again. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And that starts the lineage that leads us to Jesus. Those are probably the most important verses out of this entire book. The most powerful are right there in chapter 3, verse 9, but these are the most important because what we see is Boaz spreading his covering over Ruth. Naomi gets, gets covered as well, and she gets redeemed as well, and that leads us all the way, all the way, to Jesus, and from Jesus to us. Once we understand that, we have to ask this question. If Jesus is our Redeemer, what did He redeem us unto? What did He redeem us unto? Two things. Two things. Now, you might say, hold it. Two things, preacher. I'm not sure where you're going with this. Hang with me. The first thing that Jesus redeemed you unto was eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus redeemed us unto eternal life. 
If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been covered by his blood and by his goodness, you can rest easy, assured in your salvation. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and your place in heaven is secure. He redeemed you unto eternal life. But there is another purpose as well. In fact, that word purpose helps us understand it. Some of you are thinking right now, man, Phil, I hope you stop right there. Because Jesus redeeming us unto eternal life, that's it. That's all that matters. We don't need anything else. Don't add anything else to it. Just stop there. I wish I could. But the Bible doesn't allow it. Join me in the book of Titus, will you? Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. Man, I wish I could hear pages turning. It's part of the problem in the parking lot. I can't hear that. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So you saw the and? Right before the and that I put some emphasis on, we see that Jesus has redeemed us unto salvation and the hope of eternal life. But then there's the and, and right after it, this. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He redeemed you unto a purpose. To use the gifts that he has given you, and we talked about those just a few weeks ago, to glorify the kingdom, to lead other people to Christ, the way Naomi did. Naomi directed Ruth to Boaz. We have the same purpose, to zealously direct people to the Redeemer, to zealously direct people to Jesus. Maybe that starts in our conversation when you just walk up to somebody and say, the Lord be with you. And hopefully they respond by saying, the Lord bless you. If they look at you with a blank stare, maybe God's never been with them. You've got an open door. You have an opportunity to zealously, purposely lead them to righteousness. You were redeemed unto salvation and you were redeemed unto zealousness, unto good works so that you use all that God has given you and all that he has blessed you with to glorify his name. Zealous good works. If you have stopped solely at the point of saying, I was redeemed unto salvation, get moving again and find a zeal unto good works so that you can help lead other people to the Lord. That is part of the message that we find in this tiny little book in the Old Testament Look what Naomi did. She directed Ruth to Boaz, and Boaz covered him with his goodness, or covered her with his goodness and with his redemption, and it led all the way to Jesus. Here's what that means Ruth and Naomi, who started out in poverty and brokenheartedness, found a way to outlive their lives by the stories that they lived and the faithfulness that drove them. You have to outlive your life. That's the zealousness of good works. It allows you to outlive your life. 
by investing in things that matter the most. And what matters the most is Jesus Christ and how you direct others unto him. Outlive your life. Outlive your life by investing in the right places in the right way, and you will never be sad. If you have found that type of a zeal with the Lord, would you honk your horns, flash your lights, stick your hands out, give him a round of applause? Amen. That's part of what we saw last week in church, and that just came through simple generosity as people gave to help folks that we will never know rebuild their church zealously that they might lead others to Jesus. Generosity is an easy way. Service is a more difficult way, but you find a place that allows you to outlive your life. And there are many ministries in the church at Libby Christian Church that can help you do that. You talk to us. Tina and I will be up here when the service is over. Deanie and Beth will be down here. Matt will be up here in the front. You find one of us. We'll help you figure out how to do it, how to develop that type of zeal. Now, as the worship team comes, let me address another group of people. And it won't take very long. If you're thinking to yourself, I have yet to experience that redemption unto salvation, and I don't know what to do, then let me encourage you to use your biblical GPS. Your biblical GPS. Some of you have navigation systems in your cars right now, and when you need to go someplace, you just type in an address. And it tells you where to turn and how to get there. Some of you have it on your phone. I use it on my phone all the time. Used it just this last week. Had a great time with that. I like when Siri is directing me. It has made things so much easier. So use your biblical GPS and type in a biblical address. In fact, type in the only biblical address that exists. There is only one named street in all of the Bible. I chased this out long enough this past week to know it to be true. There are other streets in Scripture that are described, like the dusty street, the muddy street, the dirty street, the road to Damascus, things like that. We have definitions of streets, but we only have one address. In the book of Jeremiah, there's even a landmark given to describe streets, streets where the bakers live. That's just a means of describing a street. It is not an address. There is only one address. It's found in the book of Acts. Let me show it to you. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. That is the only named street in the Bible. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was 
strengthened. The street called straight. When Ananias got there, and don't lose sight of the fact that God told him to go to the street called straight so that he could zealously accomplish the purpose for which he was born, which was to lead the, apostle, the man who would become the apostle Paul. Right now we're talking Saul of Tarsus to lead Saul unto salvation. Ananias went and found a completely broken man down on his knees, and he led him to the baptistry. From brokenness to the baptistry, from sin and suffering to supplication and salvation, he led him from an old life into a new life. If you have not found your way into the new life, you go to the street called straight because it leads you directly to Jesus and somebody will be there to help you. Somebody will be there sent by God to help you figure out who the Lord is. It is not lost on me that the only named street in the Bible is named straight because it leads you straight from sin unto life. It leads you from death to life. It leads you to a redeemer where you are covered by his grace. You go to the street called straight and God will meet you there. 